all for being here again. Thank you, kids. You are dismissed up to Grace Place. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, my name's Tim. I'm the pastor here at TF. Thank you for choosing to worship with, uh, with us. Thank you for getting here. I know uh, for some of us it was a little tricky getting here uh, with some of the street closures and stuff in the neighborhood because of the, the race. But thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 3. And like I said earlier, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat back around you. And if you don't own one or um, know someone who doesn't own one, go ahead and take that. We'll, we love giving Bibles away. So Mark chapter 3, um, you're probably looking, if you're using a seat back Bible, you're looking for page 838, somewhere around there in the Seatback Bibles. Um, while you're turning there, I'd like to thank uh, our worship team. Our worship team um, puts in a lot of time and energy, uses the gifts and talents that God has given them to serve us, to love us, uh, and to help us uh, enter into worship. Right? Their, their goal up here, it's not just a bunch of Christians playing music. Their goal is to help us enter mentally, spiritually, emotionally, enter into a place where we are saying, you know what, whatever distractions, whatever kind of week we have had, now, here in this place at this time, we're going to worship God. We're going to celebrate who He is. We're going to be, uh, just be with God. And so, uh, they take that very seriously. It's a, it's a thoughtful, uh, intense group that, that loves the Lord and loves to get to do this, to get to come and be part of helping us worship, helping us uh, enter into the presence of God together. So everybody on the worship team, thank you so much for ev- all the ways you serve us. Uh, if you have some musical talent, if you are uh, interested in joining the worship team, go ahead and use those connect cards from I talked about earlier, and we can get you connected and um, talk to Daniel, and he'll get you uh, some information about what the worship team looks like and responsibilities and all of those things. So um, thank you again for everybody on the worship team. Uh, this morning, uh, I'd like to start with a quote. Author uh, Thomas Berger once said that the art and science of asking questions is the source of all knowledge. The art and science of asking questions is the source of all knowledge. I know many of us, I know I grew up, many of us I'm sure grew up uh, hearing, the, you know, hearing the phrase, there are no bad questions, there are no dumb questions. Because if you don't ask a question, you can miss out on all kinds of information, you can miss out on all kinds of wisdom, all kinds of knowledge. Um, you can just miss out even on relationships. And so sometimes, though, I think we shy away from asking questions, especially publicly. We shy away from asking questions because usually because of some combination of our pride, our ego, or a little bit of embarrassment, right? We don't want people to know, well, what will they think of me if I don't actually know what they're talking about? But what about the questions, not only that we ask other people or ask in front of other people, what about the questions internally, The times and the questions that we ask ourselves, or at least we should ask ourselves. I think we avoid those questions out of fear. Out of fear of what it's going to reveal in our own hearts and reveal what it actually says about us. Because when we begin to look inwardly and we really analyze and take stock of our thoughts and our actions and our beliefs, well now we are confronted when we have to change something. And it's much easier to just not do that. And so we avoid asking questions of ourselves. But that's exactly what I want us to do this morning. Because when you study the Gospels especially, when you look at the life of Jesus, it should cause us to, ref- to look at and reflect on our own lives. Jesus serves as many things to Christians. He is our Savior. He is our advocate. He is our friend. He is our great high priest. And he is also our example. He lives a life that we are called to live. He is the most human human who has ever humaned. He has lived the fullest life possible. 
And so when we look at him, it then causes us to say, okay, so how are we living? How are we living into this abundant life Jesus has called us to? And so in light of that, as we study Jesus, it should conjure up questions about ourselves, especially for those of us who claim to be Christians. And so this morning, there's three questions I want us to ask, and I don't necessarily have answers for them. These are questions to help us evaluate and do some internalization and do some looking at our own lives. I got three questions. The first one is, where are you silent? The second one is, are you more interested in the gift or the giver? And the third one is, does your faith, does your faith have feet? So those are the three questions we're going to analyze this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in uh, to the word. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, God, we thank you for a day to worship you. We thank you for the changing of seasons. Uh, God, we just thank you, because you're good. You're good all the time. Lord, we came here this morning to hear from you, to meet with you, uh, to be with you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would pour out on us so that we would be wise stewards of the gifts and talents and blessings that you have given us. As we look at your word this morning, that we would be challenged and encouraged and where needed rebuked to turn toward you to see our lives and see them as the blessing that they are and to see our lives as being on mission for you, being uh, stepping into this call that you have put on our lives to be the light of the world. So Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, um, and we're going, to do, we're going to cover a lot this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So uh, Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's stop there for now. So the first question I want us to ask ourselves, where are you silent? So we see Jesus starts here in the synagogue. It's where we've seen him regularly throughout the book of Mark. And so again, he is in the synagogue. And tension has been escalating. We talked about this last week. So if you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, tension has been escalating as he has made himself more and more public, as he's doing healings, as he's teaching, he's telling people their sins are forgiven, he's casting out demons. There is tension mounting between him and the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the time. He's pushing against a lot of their traditions. He's, he's making people think he's questioning things that shouldn't be questioned. And so it says they were watching him. They being the religious leaders. They knew that this man with the withered hand was there. He's possibly a plant. They might have invited him or at least said, Hey, why don't you come sit up front so Jesus will see you. It says they watched him to see what Jesus was going to do. They knew this man was hurt. They knew this man had an issue. They wanted to see how Jesus was going to respond. Because healing on the Sabbath is a big no-no. You're not supposed to do that in Pharisee tradition. Pharisaical tradition actually says that if you are hurt on the Sabbath, the only work that you can do is remove the life-threatening situation. 
But if you're not in immediate danger or life-threatening injury, you couldn't do anything. So basically, one commentator said that if you cut your finger on the Sabbath, you could stop the bleeding, but you were not allowed to put any kind of ointment on the cut to try and heal it. You had to wait till the next day. You had to wait till after the Sabbath because that ointment, putting on ointment and letting your body start to heal, that was work in Pharisee tradition and you weren't allowed to do that. So they watched Jesus to see what's he going to do here. And they watched him, why? So they could accuse him. They go into this situation with one goal in mind, to get Jesus in some kind of trouble, to catch Jesus with some kind of sin. And we see in verse 3 and 4, Jesus offers them a question. Jesus anticipates the situation. So he calls the man up. He has the man stand up in front of everybody. And he says, come here near me. And he asks the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? This is kind of tied back to what we talked about last week in chapter 2, verse 27, where Jesus is talking about the Sabbath. And he says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not built to be a punishment or a burden or work. It's literally the opposite. The Sabbath is there to help us rest, to help us trust in God, to help us be able to work hard the rest of the week and then take a break knowing that God was going to provide. And so Jesus here is asking them this question. He's saying that by withholding good from someone just because it's the Sabbath, that goes directly against the very heart of God. It rebels against the mercy and compassion of God for his people. These questions that Jesus asks, they're pretty obvious, right? What does God want you to do? Does God want you to do good for someone, or does God want you to harm someone? Taken to the very extreme, does God want you to kill someone or to save a life? Pretty obvious questions. Jesus is asking them, should I refuse to do good when I have the ability to do good just because of what day of the week it is? And it says in verse 4, their response was, they were silent. He asked them this question, but they were silent. Right here in this moment, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they have a choice. They could have stood up after Jesus' question and declared, you know what? God is good. God wants us to do good. So Jesus, do your thing. Heal this man. Who cares that it's the Sabbath? Do some good here. But instead, they were silent. And I don't want you to misunderstand why they were silent. They weren't silent because this is an obvious or even rhetorical question, even though it pretty much is. They weren't silent because this was a theoretical question. This was live, right here, right now. Jesus is asking them, this man right here is in pain. What do you want me to do about it? He's hurting, he's suffering right now. How should I respond? But they were silent. And in staying silent, the Pharisees were actually saying something very, very loudly. They were saying that their traditions, their views, their opinions, their comfort in the way things had always been was more important to them than the suffering of another human being. When tradition supersedes the care of people, something has gone very wrong and has gone against the gospel. And so Jesus responds in verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of hearts, and he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Those are some intense words that Jesus uses here about Jesus. Anger, grieved, hardness of heart. Their silence, 
Their hardness of heart brought out in Jesus anger and grief. Hardness of heart is is a blindness. Literally translated, it's having calluses over something. We would translate it stubbornness. He's angry and grieved because these Pharisees know better and they are blatantly choosing the wrong way. These guys literally, not exaggerating, literally have the first five books of the Bible memorized. I know my wife's phone number and that's about it. They have the first five books of the Bible memorized. They knew truth. They knew right from wrong. But they were so entrenched in their own way of thinking, their own views, they wouldn't even consider that maybe these man-made traditions they had come up with had some flaws in it. Jesus looked at them with anger. Wrath, indignation is that word. We don't see Jesus get angry a lot. It's, it's a very few amount of times. But right here in this moment, Jesus is angry. Anger in itself is not a sin. It's how we respond in our anger where the sin happens. And we saw this kind of same situation with the leper. When Jesus heals the leper, God, Jesus saw this leper suffering and in pain. And he got, he got angry and he was grieved that this man was suffering. He got angry and grieved at sin and the consequences of it because God hates sin. He hates the consequences of sin that we have to deal with. It disgusts him. These religious leaders knew truth. They had the word of God. And yet they chose their own traditions over what God truly requires of his people. They were okay with this man suffering just one more day so that he could get healed on a day that wasn't the Sabbath. It didn't only make Jesus rightfully and righteously angry, but it grieved him. It pained the heart of God that these religious folks knew right from wrong, they knew better, and they refused to change their minds. He's angry at them. He's heartbroken for them. He's heartbroken for them because he knows what their future entails. He knows that if they continue in their stubbornness, if they continue in this hard-heartedness, they knows how this story ends for them. But it doesn't stop Jesus trying to teach, trying to show them the light, trying to do good and save lives. So he tells the man, stretch out your hand. This guy, he just wanted to come worship. He didn't know he was going to be the object of an illustration. He didn't know he was going to be the center of attention this day. And so he gets up and he does something that he hasn't been able to do. He stretches out his hand. He has the faith to do what he has not been able to do and he is completely healed and restored in that moment. 100% healing because when Jesus moves, when God moves and heals, he doesn't do partially, he doesn't do halfway. No, he's fully restored. He has, this man has his hand back. And how did the Pharisees respond? This is a great miracle. This man had one hand and now he's got two again. He can do things. He can work. He can be. He is no longer needing to rely on other people. This should be an awesome day where the God has moved. And how did the Pharisees respond in verse 6? They went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The Herodians are those who supported King Herod and thus supported Rome. 
They were a political group who supported the government that was oppressing the Jews. So think about this. Right here in this moment, you have the, you have the Herodians, a political group who support King Herod, who support Rome, who are all about trying to keep the political powers in place. And then you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees long for the Messiah. The Messiah who's going to free the Jews, who's going to remove any kind of oppression, who's going to remove and establish and, and bring them back to glory. You have these two groups who are at complete opposites with one another. Now meeting together. This unholy alliance is formed with the sole purpose of, let's kill Jesus. I think it's interesting that the straw that broke the camel's back for the Pharisees is this situation, right? It's not just this that made made them want to kill Jesus. It's all of these things we've been looking at for the last few weeks where he's been teaching, he's been saying things and just kind of getting under their skin and and really dealing and pushing back against a lot of their traditions. But this is the one that they said, okay, he's got to die. What did Jesus actually do here? He didn't do anything. He doesn't make a potion or a balm. He didn't do any work. He doesn't even touch the guy. Jesus just stood up, he said some words, and yet they were so enraged with all that Jesus had been doing that they came in They came in looking for a fight. They came in looking to accuse him. It didn't matter how Jesus responded here. They were too hard-hearted to see who Jesus was and what he was doing. Remember that question Jesus asked them. What is lawful on the Sabbath? To do harm or to do good? To save a life or to kill? Well, here the Pharisees have answered that question. Because they are actively pursuing now how to do harm and how to have him killed on the Sabbath. The question I have for us this morning is, where are you silent? There's two sides to that question. What are the areas of your life where you know right from wrong and you choose to do wrong? You intentionally choose wrong, where you are actively choosing sin in your life. For whatever reason, whatever your excuse is, it feels good, it's easy, it's not hurting anybody, where's that spot for you? We we call that sin of commission. Sin angers. And not only angers, but grieves the heart of God. And if that alone for you, if you are a Christian this morning, if that alone for you isn't enough to convict convict you and to, to turn and repent and walk toward God, then I'd question whether or not you're actually saved. Because what you are doing is actively breaking the heart of God. Now the other side of that is, where in your life do you know right from wrong, and you choose not to do what is right? Now that might sound like I just used right and wrong and moved them around a bunch, but it is a different question. James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do, and he fails to do it, for him it is sin. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If Jesus didn't heal this man, if he doesn't heal that man's hand on that day, it would have been sin. Because he knew the right thing to do. If he refused to do it, it would have been sin. When you know what is right and you refuse to do it, that's sin. That's a sin of omission. This tends to be the yeah, but category. Matthew 5.44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
That's Jesus giving us a command. Yeah, but you don't know what they've done to me. Yeah, but they didn't apologize. Yeah, but they're just evil. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We know what is right, but we choose to not do it. Where are you silent? Where are those places in your life where you know right from wrong and you sit silently as Jesus shows you what is true? Second question I have for us is, are we more concerned with the gifts or with the giver? Let's pick it up in verse 7. After this situation, Jesus, in verse 7, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus' reputation is spreading. People are coming from all over the place, from the north, the south, the east, west. People are flocking to wherever Jesus is. They are pressing in on him. They figure, if I can just touch him, I'm going to be healed. His reputation for being able to heal and cast out demons is appealing, and people are coming out in droves. The crowds are so large that Jesus tells the disciples, get a boat ready just in case we need to make a, a fast exit. Just in case things get too out of hand, we can get away. Look at verse 8 again. The second half of verse 8 it says, when the, great, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. They weren't coming for Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God. They weren't coming because he was the Messiah. They weren't coming because he was the Son of God. They were coming because of what he could do for them. The people wanted healing. They wanted relief from their sickness. They wanted relief from their oppression. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. God cares about our physical. He cares about our emotional. He cares about our spiritual. And he wants all of those things to be healthy and well. He wants you to enjoy your life. He doesn't want you to be in pain or sick or hurt. So yes, bring those things to Jesus. Bring those things to God. That's not a bad thing. Jesus here heals and casts out demons. If it was wrong, right? If it was bad for them to want to be healthy, he wouldn't do it. But he's healing them. He's casting out demons. The problem we get ourselves into is our motivation. It's our focus. Are we more concerned with knowing Jesus or getting things from him? Are we more concerned in growing, in knowing who God is, and being in his presence? Or are we more concerned in what he can do for us? The crowd was concerned with what Jesus could do for them. They were missing the point. What's your relationship with Jesus built on? Is Jesus like, you know, the, the axe behind the break glass in case of emergency kind of situation? When things are bad, then I'll go to him. When, when I need something, then I'll go to him. Otherwise, we'll just keep it quiet. When things are hard, when things are tough, when there's just something you want, is that the times you go to Jesus? Those aren't bad times, but if those are the only times, what is that? what kind of relationship is that? Our relationship with God is built on our need for him, right? If you're a Christian... 
Your relationship is based on, I know I can't do this on my own. I know I need help. I know I need a Savior. So there is a, a basis of need between us and God. We are dependent on Him for grace and mercy and love. But if you only view God in light of what He can or will do for you, something has gone wrong and you are missing the point. That's not a relationship. And you shouldn't be then surprised or frustrated when things don't work out as you want them to. And then you blame God for being mean or unfair or somehow not good when your whole relationship is just based on, I want, I need, give me. God has and will pour out blessings on blessings on blessings. But if we are more concerned with the gifts rather than the giver, we won't see or experience either one. Pastor John Piper once said, we should look at everything good that God gives us and see right into it and through it to him who is the good giver. We should look at everything good that God gives us and see right into it and through it to him who is the good giver. Are you more concerned with the giver or the gifts? The last question I have for us is, does your faith have feet? Does your faith have feet? Let's pick it up in, uh, we're going to skip through 13. We're going to go down into verse 20. It says, Then he went home and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. In verse 13 through 19, Jesus, the, the section we skipped, Jesus officially appoints the 12 disciples, as we know them, 12 apostles. Apostle just means sent as a messenger. This is him appointing, establishing, here is my inner 12. Here are the guys I'm going to pour into. It's no mistake that he picks 12. These are the a new representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is going to be the new church. These are going to be the guys who start to who lay the foundation for the church after Jesus leaves. They were sent out on behalf of Jesus to preach, and they had the authority to cast out demons. Jesus says, look, things are getting bigger and bigger. I want to send you guys out. This message, the kingdom of God message, needs to keep going. So they were sent out by Jesus. They didn't go through any seminary. They didn't have any kind of formal training. These were just, as we've seen throughout Mark, these are fishermen and tax collectors, regular guys. They've been around Jesus maybe at this point a year and a half, two years. But what did they do? They were sent out to do what? Teach what they knew. They didn't know everything. They didn't have every answer. We're going to continue to see. They have questions and they miss the point over and over again. But Jesus still sends them out because they knew enough. They knew enough about the kingdom of God. They knew enough to, to be a blessing to other people. Are you a blessing to other people? Do you take what you know? Do you take what you know about God and share that with others? So Jesus sends them out. It says in verse 20 what we read, that they go back to Peter's house where he's kind of made his base camp in Capernaum. They go back to Peter's place and the crowd is once again pressing in. They are all over the place. They want a sign. They want a miracle. They want healing. Things get so crowded that Jesus and his close friends and followers can't even eat. It's a madhouse. It's Black Friday levels of full. It's standing room only and then some. People are crushing. It's in verse 21, when his family heard about these things. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. 
We don't know what family exactly it's talking about. That phrase is actually fairly vague. Some translations, if you don't have an ESV, some translations will say um, his own people wanted to go out and seize him or his friends wanted. It's, it's Jesus' inner close. It's probably some combination of his family, um, some close friends. We're not totally sure who it is. But people close to Jesus saw and heard what was going on and they thought he was out of his mind for letting things escalate to this point. The crowds were large. Right? He's having to plan getaways in boats. He's picking fights in public with the religious leaders. Jesus' closest friends and family think he has lost his mind, and so they want to go and get him away from everything. They clearly don't understand who Jesus is at this point. They want to go seize him and pull him away from everything. Now what we see going on here in the next section is that um, it's something we're going to see throughout Mark. Mark tends to write in a sandwich kind of form, where... Mark gets a little distracted. It's because, remember, Mark's account of the gospel is Peter telling Mark things, and Peter tends to get distracted. And so what happens is Mark's telling a story, right? And then in the midst of the story, he kind of tells another little story, and then he comes back to the first story he was telling. And that's kind of what we have here. So this section uh, from verse 22 through, 20, uh, through 30, we're going to pick up next week because that's a whole other thing that we've got to talk about. But we're going to jump down, go down to verse 31, because this kind of closes the loop on this whole he's out of his mind thing. So verse 31 says, His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' mother and brothers show up, but Jesus uses this as a teaching point. So they're outside. Remember, it's so packed, people can't get anywhere close to him. And they're calling for Jesus. And so this long game of telephone happens. Finally, word gets to Jesus inside the house that his mother and brothers are outside. Verse 33, it says, Jesus looked around and he asks, Well, who are my mother and my brothers? This one is a rhetorical question. And we see him answer it himself in verse 34. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And I I, got to think Jesus just kind of let the awkwardness kind of sit for a little while. And finally he tells them, those who are sitting at the table with him, those are his family. It's probably the 12, right? They all just got named and kind of set up as the, the set 12. So it's probably the 12 disciples. But what we find out is it goes beyond the 12 disciples because he says in verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Those who don't just talk about it, those who don't just theorize or argue and debate about it, but actually do the will of God, those people are the family of Jesus. God is not interested in how much knowledge you have, how much information you know. He's interested in whether or not your faith has feet. Whether or not you actually do the will of God. Because it's one thing to know it, and it's another thing to put it into practice. For your faith to have feet, to do the will of God, that means you've got to have an idea of what the will of God is, right? You can't do it unless we know what it is. Which means we've got to hear from God. Which means we've got to actually open the book and read it. Which means getting quiet in prayer and just listening. Cutting out the noise of this world and just listening. Just being with Him. 
It means being in fellowship with other Christians who are also seeking the will of God to help you discern the will of God, as well as, hey, I want to pursue this thing too. Let's do this together. These are the things we have to do if we want to actually do the will of God. And doing the will of God, sometimes it's going to look like, it's going to look to others like you're doing something out of your mind. You aren't being practical. You aren't being rational. Jesus only did the will of God. And that's part of why others thought he was losing it. They didn't understand he was just being faithful to God. Because when you actually do the big two commandments, right? Love God, love people. When you're actually doing that, things are going to get messy. There will be people who can't or won't understand your motives, and that's okay. Because at the end of the day, if you are a Christian, you fully admit and believe that your life is no longer your own. It was purchased from the debt it was under to sin, purchased with the blood of Christ. His death and his resurrection purchased your life. Paul says in Corinthians, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so your motives, if you are a Christian, your motives, your perspective changes. I hope you realize, for those of you who have been around uh, for this series for the last six or seven weeks, that as you study the Gospels, when you look at Jesus, it's always going to cause us to come back and reflect on our own lives. That it's going to force us to question who we are, how we are living, and where we need to grow. And when we do this, when we have the kind of questions that we have today, and really any time you go to Scripture and are confronted by truth and realize you don't measure up, there's, so, well, there's what should happen and what shouldn't happen. When we have days like today, I don't want you to look at these questions and say, woe is me, I'm the worst, I can't do anything right, I'm hopeless, I've messed everything up. When you come to Scripture and you're convicted by your own failings or your own shortcomings. It's not with the intention to wallow in guilt and shame and self-loathing. Christ has already paid for all of that stuff. He has died so that you can live and live abundantly. When we have questions like today, we need to figure out the places we are lacking, figure out the places where we need to grow, and then pray. Pray and confess. Confess and say, God, you know these shortcomings. You know I need to grow in these places. And ask God for the boldness and the strength and the wisdom and the grace to pursue living into the light that he's called you to be. And then do it. Live taking every thought captive. Being mindful of your interactions. Choosing to pursue God with your decisions. Because growing in godliness, growing in pursuing the will of God, growing in your faith is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day process. I tell people all the time, when, when people come and they're struggling with sin or whatever, it's just win today. Just get through today. Make decisions that you are going to put you in a place where you can pursue and glorify God. Do that today. And then do the same thing tomorrow. Take it one day at a time. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has its own things. Worry about today. Worry about making the right decisions. Worry about pursuing God right now. And then when tomorrow comes, worry about that. Take it one day at a time. And when, not if, but when you mess up and you fall short and you sin, then you confess it, you pray about it, and you start back up again. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It is a daily, moment-by-moment series of choices to live into the full, abundant life that God has offered you by putting your faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. 
So where are you silent? Identify those places where you know right from wrong. Identify them, confess them, and be done with them. Are you more interested in the giver or in the gifts? Because God has so much more in store for you, so much more than just stuff in store for you if you will pursue Him and not just the things He can offer you. And lastly, does your faith have feet? Are you actually living out the faith that you claim to have? Ask yourself these questions and ask God for grace and boldness in the newness, ask Him for newness in these areas that you may be lacking. Because this God, this God who brings new lives, who healed the man with the withered hand, this God who sends us out to be part of his mission and plan on this earth, this God who invites us into his family through the blood of Jesus, this God will give you the power and strength and ability and even the desire to grow in your relationship with him. He is for you and not against you. He is good and good all of the time. Even when you find these areas where you are lacking, even when you find these areas where you are blatantly rebelling against him, when you come to him and you confess and you repent, he is good and he forgives and he loves you and he wants what is best for you. So ask yourself these questions and then respond to them because God has something so much more in store for you. Let's pray.